Welcome to this episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty. How do we know the life that we have been created for and saved for? We all need to remind each other daily of the answer to this question. And that's just what Charlie McCall, the director here at His Hill, wants to do as he leads us through a study in Romans chapter 1. just share from Romans chapter 1. Um, I have the privilege of teaching Romans every year to the second year students. It's a book that I have grown to love very much. I We know that, that this is one of only two um, churches that Paul had not visited before he wrote to them. Um, and Romans is regarded as probably the crown jewel of all of Paul's um, letters. And I think it's it's interesting to take into into account that he had not visited this church personally, and how it influences his his what he says. Um, for one, um, we know that this is the book where he talks most about how the Christian life is lived. Where we have three entire chapters, Romans six, seven, and eight, um, on presenting ourselves to Christ, what it looks like to walk according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. So it's very unique in that way, and I, I think um, that Paul was concerned that because he had not personally started this church and led these people to Jesus, that maybe they um, needed to be um, maybe perhaps here for the first time or at least be reminded that um, the Christian life is about Christ living in and through us because he knew that it's so easy for people to be saved and then from there try to just do their best and not to live from Christ. And so he makes it very clear in this book that the means for living the Christian life is Christ himself. Um, It's obviously a church that he's taken a lot of interest in. Um, Having never visited it, he still um, knows um, something like it's almost two dozen people in this church that he mentions by name. Um, it's the church that is in the center of the Roman Empire, and Rome was not only the um, political center of the world, it was the religious center of the world because they worshiped the emperor, and the emperor was in Rome. And so to have a church in Rome was significant. I don't know that we could compare it to anything today except perhaps if there were, if a church in Mecca, um, which would be the religious and political center for Islam, um, might be an equivalent to a church being in Rome. And so Paul is excited about this church. It's very much on his heart and mind. He prays for them constantly, and the truths that he shares with them are very foundational. Um, So he starts and he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he wants to um, just talk a little bit about what that gospel is. And he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the, in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel is not a new message. There's always been only one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith. And so the Old Testament, it, we were saved in the same way we're saved in the New Testament. And so he says this is something that is not new, but it's something that has been promised throughout the Old Testament. 
The gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ. It's not about um, us. It's not about the world. It's about Jesus. It concerns his son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh. According to the flesh, Paul means here, according to his humanity. So when we look at Jesus, he is both fully God and fully man. And in, cons- in, res- in respect to his humanity, he is the son of David. Now, I, we're not, not going to get into it now, but um, it's very significant to trace how Paul uses according to the flesh. This is the first time it comes up in his letter. In chapter 8, he, he will use that phrase several times. And the tragic thing that has happened today is that um, Christians, evangelicals, just have a default mechanism in, their, in themselves that every time they hear flesh, they think sin nature. Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but he was born according to the flesh. When Paul uses that phrase, according to the flesh, he's speaking of our humanity. And so in chapter 8, he's going to say, you can walk as a Christian according to the flesh, or you can walk according to the Spirit. It's not a um, dichotomy or, 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 or um, a competition between spirit and sin nature, but rather it is a choice to walk according to the Spirit or according to our humanity apart from Christ. And so that's important um, to look at um, and keep in mind throughout the book of Romans. And then in respect to his deity, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection did not make Jesus become the Son of God, but it is the declaration that he is the Son of God. It is God's exclamation point on who Jesus is. All the miracles bear testimony to who Christ is, but the one thing that more than anything else that establishes that Jesus is the Son of God is the resurrection. It is God's powerful exclamation point on who he is. We never need to doubt the deity of Christ and the power of Christ because he is fully God. And so um, he didn't become the Son of God. He's always from all eternity been the Son of God, but the resurrection is God's strongest statement attesting to who Jesus is. And because he is God, um, and Son of God doesn't mean less than God, it means fully God, just as Son of Man does not mean less than than man, it means fully man. But as God, um, he, is, he has all power, and He is the one who is able to save. And if He is not sufficient for living the Christian life in and through us, then no one is. And so then he goes on. I want to highlight just a few other things. And in verse 5, it's very important here. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his namesake. So the reason for the gospel and the reason for Paul's apostleship is so that people might, by the power of Christ, who is God, be moved from disobedience to obedience through faith in Christ. And that is the essence of what it means to be saved, is that disobedient enemies of God became obedient from the heart. And that obedience is is so significant to Paul. Obedience doesn't um, make us saved. Um, Obedience is not assurance of salvation, but obedience is the mark of salvation or the evidence of salvation. 
It's not, it's not something that we can do. We don't make ourselves obedient. Obedience is something that God does, that He transforms the rebel into an obedient child of God. And it is the mark of our salvation that from the heart now we can obey God. And so Paul, he says, this is the purpose of the gospel, to bring about the obedience of faith. The purpose is not to make me happy. It's not to make me fulfilled. It's not even to make me forgiven. But the purpose is that I become one who was disobedient, now become obedient because of God's saving power in my life. And so Paul begins Romans with that purpose statement, that we've been saved in order to be made obedient through faith in Christ. And he'll end Romans in the same way. So in chapter 15 and 16, he comes back to that theme. So they're the bookends of this book. And so he says in chapter 15, verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So he says, this is what it's about. He says, I want people to be saved, but saved so that they would obey him through faith. And he says, when it comes to my life, Paul says, and I look back over everything that God has done, the most significant thing that God ever did was use me to bring others to obedience. He could have said to bring them to faith, but it is the obedience that is the evidence of faith. Anybody can say they believe, but the evidence that we believe is that we obey Jesus Christ, and we can only obey Him because of the transforming work that He's accomplished in our lives. And then chapter 16, the second to the last verse in the book, verse 26 but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul begins this letter talking about the obedience of faith, and he ends the letter speaking about the same thing. Clearly, it's what Paul wants us to get from this book, that we've been saved by the power of God, that we might obey God. And so again, obedience is not the um, assurance of my salvation. I'm not sure that I'm saved because I obey Him. But obedience is the proof, it is the testimony, it is the witness that I belong to Him. How else can I prove to somebody that I belong to Him except that I do what He says? And how can I do what He says except by the power of Christ who lives in me? And so anybody can say they're saved. But when it comes to the actual proving that you're saved, that is in obedience. It's just as, as any, any person can claim that he is the father of, of, any, of a child. But what proves that he is the father of that child is when the child obeys him and not another man. And so it's the child's obedience that proves who he belongs to. And it's our obedience to Christ that proves that we belong to him. And again, we know from the New Covenant, as it's written in the Old Testament, that this is a work of God, and it's not our work. So I don't just aspire to obedience. I don't determine to be obedient. I am I'm apart from Christ a rebel. I am disobedient by nature. I'm described in the New Testament, one of Paul's other letters, as a son of disobedience. So it's only Christ that can transform me and make me now something other than what I was. And now I can obey Him from the heart because the obedient one, Jesus Christ, lives within me. This is why Jesus was pleasing to the Father, because he always did what the Father said. 
He was obedient in all things. And now the one who is the obedient son has come to live within me. And so what clearer way for him to make known to the world that I belong to him than the same character of obedience is seen in me as is seen in him because he is the obedient one living his life in me. And so this is where, where salvation is, is pointed. It's pointed to Jesus manifesting himself in the believer um, by obedience through faith. And so then as he continues, he, he, he's going to say that he wants to come and see the Romans, and he's longed to see them. He prays for them constantly, and he's prayed for an opportunity to be with them. And he makes this interesting statement in verse 11. He says, For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. And there, are, based on that statement, I want to see you in, in order to impart some spiritual gift to you. Um, people think that, that Paul um, somehow just went around everywhere he went and just laid hands on people and gave spiritual gifts to them. That would not be the case. That's not what he's talking about here. In 1 Corinthians um, 12, he, Paul says that it's the Spirit that determines who's going to get which gift, not Paul. And so Paul explains what he means in verse 12 when he says, that is, so that's the word of explanation, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So the spiritual gift that he wanted to impart to them was the gift of encouragement. And we've all been at times when we've needed to be encouraged and God sends the right person at the right time to speak the right words and we're encouraged and we go, that was a gift from God. And so Paul's saying, that's what I want to do. I want to come to you, and I want to encourage you. But not only that, but I want it to be reciprocal, mutual, that not only would I encourage you, but that you would encourage me. So Paul's wanting to receive a spiritual gift from them too, as it were, the gift of encouragement, that they would both be encouraged, each by the other's faith, while they're together. And that just re reminds me that, that there is nobody in our life who is not in need of encouragement. And the most eminent Bible teachers, our, our mentors, our spiritual giants in our lives, they need encouragement. Paul was one of those guys. You look at the life of Paul and you go, what could anybody have ever done to encourage him? And Paul's saying, I need encouragement and I want to be with Christians and to be encouraged by them. I think of, uh, you know, when I, when I think about that, I think about different people I've known who have had um, the gift of giving. Um, not my gift, but, but I'm certainly glad to know people who have the gift of giving, and I've been blessed by them. But I know one man years ago, um, when I was in seminary and I was living in Arkansas for one summer, and, um, and I, all the money that I made that summer had to go to paying off student loans, um, and, and I didn't have any money to tithe, and I, and I really wanted to be able to tithe. So I remember telling the Lord, says, God, I don't have any money that I can tithe because everything has to go to these loans but I do have time, and so show me just how I can give time. And a man in the church came to me, a wealthy man, and he says, Charlie, I've got this little hobby farm outside of the town, and I'd like for you to work on the farm um, every Saturday morning for four hours from 8 to 12, and I'll pay you at the end of the summer. Well, I knew that was going to be my tithe because four hours is 10% of 40, and I was working a 40-hour a week, and God drops in my, in my lap an opportunity to work for this other man for four hours a week, 10% of my time. 
And I did, with joy in my heart. Every Saturday, I went out there for four hours, worked on this guy's farm, cleaned up the place, cut weeds, did stacked wood, whatever it needed to be done. And at the end, always purposing in my heart, I wouldn't take a dime from the man because this was my tithe. And at the end of the summer, this generous man said, Charlie, thank you for all the work you've done. My farm's never looked better. And he pulls out of his pocket this wad of money like I've never seen before. And he says, here, thank you for all that you've done. And I looked at him and I said, I can't take it. And I said, this is my tithe. I worked there this summer as unto the Lord just to bless you. And I'm thankful for the opportunity that you gave me to to do what I know that God wanted me to do. And this man who all he did was give, in fact, one time I was driving down the highway with him and he had his hands up in the air, and he said, and, and he's acting like his hands were antennas. And he says, Charlie, every day I wake up in the morning with my antenna up, saying, God, who can I bless? Who can I give to? And at the end of the summer, when I refused to accept that money and gave it back to him, he had tears in his eyes. And I realized at that moment, this man encourages others constantly through his gift of giving, and nobody ever gives to him. And it, and it was such a powerful thing to me that everybody needs to be encouraged. And those with the gift of giving need to be given to. Whatever the gift is, you know, we need to give back. And, I, and since that time, I've seen the same thing repeated a couple of other occasions where um, I've, I've been able to give to those who are always giving. And it's amazing how it has encouraged their hearts. And so what a gift Paul's talking about here that he wants to give the gift of encouragement through his faith, but he also says, I need to receive the same. So this is something that's reciprocal. This is not Paul handing out spiritual gifts. This is one brother to another saying, I want to be with you and each of us be encouraged by the other's faith. And then Paul makes these three statements concerning the gospel. Verse 14, I am under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. And number, in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So I'm under obligation, I am eager, and I'm not ashamed. And, and again, it's just, um, this, these things ought to characterize my life and each of our lives. First, a sense of obligation. When we are saved, it isn't just for us. The gospel is a trust. We've heard the gospel, we've been saved by the gospel, and now we are indebted to share the gospel. And so the obligation here is the same idea of if somebody were to make you the executor of their estate, they write their will out, and they've got all this stuff that they're going to leave to their heirs, but they make another person, usually not an heir, an executor. And that executor now has a debt. He doesn't he, it's not a debt that he's borrowed money and he has to pay it back, but he has a debt in a sense of an obligation that he is obligated, according to the wishes of the one who wrote the will, to execute the will as, he, as the executor wanted it executed. And so he is the executor of the estate. He is under obligation to the heirs. And Paul is saying that everyone who has received the gospel, who has been saved through faith in Christ, has an obligation, a debt, to those who are not been saved. Because God has put us in a position now, through faith in Christ, 
that we are obligated, we are indebted to share the gospel with those who have not yet heard it. And so this is a, this is a, a burden, an obligation, a, um, 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 a duty that the Lord has laid upon all who are saved. We need to wake up in the morning and realize that I have, the salvation that God has extended to me is not just for me. It's not all about me, but God has saved me that others would hear and be blessed. Then verse 15, thus for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But eager doesn't mean that Paul was all the time um, confident. He, at times he was, was terrified. He wrote to the Corinthians and said, I was with you in fear and in trembling. And so I can be eager to share the gospel, but at the same time be um, afraid to share the gospel. And we've all knows, know this experience. Nothing gets us more excited than, than having the chance to share the gospel with others. And we should pray for that opportunity. But at the same time, we can be terrified to open our mouths. But Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And again, so should we. And then verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. A lot of times today, people don't want to speak because they're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of what it's going to cost them. And Paul says, I, I know all about that kind of fear, but I am not ashamed. People are going to call us fools for believing that Jesus saves, fools for believing that, that God loves us and that there is a God and they gave his son for us. And Paul says, I won't be ashamed because he knows that the gospel and only the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I know a man who is quite the evangelist, and he loves talking with atheists. And he, um, he kind of pushes them a bit, and he says, tell me how atheism's working for you. Can you tell me one marriage that has been saved because of atheism? Can you tell me one alcoholic who has been delivered from his alcoholism because of atheism? Can you talk, show me one life that has been improved because of atheism? And when there's no response, he holds up his phone and says, I have at least a hundred contacts in my phone of people's lives who have been totally and utterly transformed because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't say that about anything else. There's only one thing that truly changes the hearts of mankind, and that is the gospel of Jesus. Faith in Christ changes lives. It is the power of God for salvation. So that's not going to happen from government. It's not going to happen from anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. And so I have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. People of the world are going to treat us like fools for believing the truth. But the truth is, God saves, and only God saves, and he does so through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is and always will be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That means all of mankind. And then verse 17 is probably the theme of the whole book. And this is from Habakkuk. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So Habakkuk was the first one to make that statement. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul quotes it also in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, he seems to be putting the emphasis on the faith. A righteous man will live by faith, not by works, not by our effort, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. And the faith here is not faith in itself, but faith in Christ. But in Romans, Paul seems to put the emphasis on the live. The righteous man shall live by faith. In that the way that we as Christians know life, because a righteous man is a saved man. And so the unrighteous are not saved. The unrighteous um, don't have life. But the righteous man already has life. He's righteous because he's placed his faith in Christ. Paul says that those who do not that, that when we place in our faith in Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we are righteous. Righteousness is not what we do. Righteousness is Christ. And when you place your faith in Christ, he comes to live in you. You are declared righteous. You are imputed with the very righteousness of God. So we are righteous through faith in Christ. Now, live. The righteous man who has life cannot, can live in such a way as to not know the life that he has. That's what Paul's getting after here in Romans. This will be the major theme of the book. It was John Stott that pointed out in his commentary that the first four chapters of Romans emphasize faith. In fact, he counted 25 references to faith. But you know how many times life is mentioned? Twice. But in the next four chapters, five through eight, that ratio completely switches. Faith is only mentioned twice in chapters five through eight, but life is mentioned 25 times. And so if he's correct on his numbers, that's an amazing observation he's made. Faith, 25 times in the first four chapters. Life, twice. But in the next four chapters, faith only two times, life 25 times. So clearly Paul's purpose is to move us toward life. He wants us to understand that when the Christian lives by faith in Christ, then he will know life. And if we don't live by faith in Christ, we will not know the very life that has been given to us through faith in Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? You can have Jesus in you who is life, and yet not know the life that you've been given. And it's because we're not living by faith in the one who has come to take up residence in us, who is himself life. So this is where Paul's going with this. Jesus, he is the heart of the gospel. He is fully man. He is fully God. He is able to save. And that salvation will look like obedience from the heart, not obedience that I put on, not obedience that I strive for, but obedience that he accomplishes because of his transforming work in my life. And as I've been transformed by him, I can be used by God to be an encouragement to others because of my faith. And I should understand that that makes me obligated to share Jesus with others. I should be eager to do so, not ashamed of the gospel, because I know in my own life it is the power of God unto salvation. And also understanding that, that the life that I've been given is a life that He wants me to know every minute of every day. He hasn't just been, I haven't just been saved so that I would get out of heaven, hell and go to heaven. I haven't been saved just to have my sins forgiven, but I've been saved that I might know life. And that life is known in the same way that I came into salvation from the very beginning, and that is through faith in Christ. And as I believe Him, trust in Him, and as He's already defined faith, I will not boast about anything that I've done, but only what Christ has accomplished through me. Faith is trusting in the activity of another. Then he says that as I trust in Christ to live his life in me just as I trusted him to save me from my sin, 
then I will know life by faith. If you're not signed up to get the His Hill newsletter, then you can sign up to receive it on our website at hishill.org. You can find the sign up under the About tab. If there are any topics or questions you would like for us to cover in the podcast, please send Kelly an email and let him know at kelly at hishill.org. We would love to hear your requests. Also, if you're interested in having any of our teachers come and speak at your church, Bible study, retreat, or any other occasion, please contact Kelly. We're in our last week of camp, and it is wonderful to look back over the summer months and think of all the amazing things that God has done here. God truly is good. Some of our summer staff have been here with us for a year or two as students and will be heading home at the end of the week to begin what God has next for them. Please keep them in your prayers as they make the transition into life after the hill and that they continue to seek Him with their all in whatever it is that awaits them. Bible school starts in 33 days. I may or may not have a countdown for that. And we are quite excited to welcome our new and returning students to the hill soon. Please keep praying for these incoming students that they would step onto campus with a surrendered heart and a tremendous desire to know Christ more. You've been listening to the His Hill podcast featuring our host, Kelly Doherty, and our devotion today was led by our director, Charlie McCall. I'm Lizzie. Thank you so much for tuning in. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, and we'll see you next time.